Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. Do you find calm people fascinating? I'm not talking about people that get paralyzed by indecision or people that come across as indifferent. I'm talking about those rare individuals that can intentionally take in incredibly volatile input and still hold it together in a way that leads to clear thinking and mobilization of people towards a solution or acceptable outcome. This phenomenon is deliberate calm. The good news is that it is a skill and it's the topic of conversation today. Months ago, I came across the article in the Harvard Business Review written by Jacqueline Brassey of the McKinsey Health Institute and her colleague Mike Pruitt, an independent consultant and thought leader. We are thrilled to have both of them on the show today. Enjoy. Jackie and Mihil, I just wanted to welcome you to the Ultra Habits podcast. It's 8.30 p.m. here in Australia. Where are you two joining me from Jackie, maybe I'll start with you. Thank you, RJ, for having us. Uh, it's yeah. great to be here. I'm joining today from Luxembourg, uh, which means it's uh, Central European time. Uh, it's about a quarter to one here in the afternoon. I'm in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands. So, okay. uh, same time as well, Jackie. It's truly international uh, interview we got going. So, I came across your article in the HBR, and I, I read many different articles, and it did catch my eye. You know, uh, the, the article was talking about how we can all become more adaptable in challenging situations. Jackie, how did you and Mihil come, you know, across this work? Like, what actually got you interested in this particular type of work and in the, the subject? Oh, thank you for that question, RJ. Um, I will let uh, Michiel answer for him himself, but we were both um, in different areas before. We, we just found each other on this journey, but before we started to write together, uh, I have already done uh, work in the area of uh, emotional flexibility and authentic confidence. Uh, and that had to do with my own personal journey um, and my struggles with anxiety which I've had uh, my whole life. And uh, and I reached a point where I actually wanted to do something about it. And, and I've done a TED talk on it. I've written a lot about it. But I come from that angle. And um, and because of that, I also have uh, studied the neuroscience behind anxiety and adaptability um, extensively the last couple of years. Miguel? Yeah, for me, I mean, the, the reason why uh, I think we wrote the article and the book is um, because we all, all the writers basically have been very engaged for the past decades in helping executive teams go through business change, uh, transformational change. And what we often find is that 
um, when you go and get stuff in the boardroom, um, the, the, the vision gets narrower and uh, the space contracts instead of expands. So the purpose of this book, there was actually a lot of our clients asked us to, hey, why don't you write a book about it? Because it's so powerful. And, and we hear so little about this in our roles. Um, is actually to bring more awareness that you can do much more to manage yourself, uh, your emotional state, your awareness, um, and help others uh, in that as well um, in your role as a business professional. For executive. Jackie, in terms of the executives that you guys have come across and work on or either research, like, I would imagine that as an executive, particularly one that's gone into the boardroom, they would have developed a sense of managing themselves. Is that true? Like, in, in the main, do, do you find that at an executive level, uh, there's a high percentage of people that have a good ability to manage themselves or does it get just as messy as any other scenario? Well, RJ, I have no doubt that executives in the boardroom have mastered many things, otherwise they can't get into the boardroom. Um, at the same time, you would be surprised about the huge amount of opportunity uh, when it comes to these skills. So it doesn't always mean that you've mastered these particular set of skills that we describe in the book to come in the, in the boardroom. And um, and I think everybody from boardroom to factory floor can benefit from them. Um, and so there is a huge opportunity. And, and what we also see is, uh, you know, some have uh, a talent and a tendency to be naturally uh, more advanced in this space than others. But I think everybody can still learn a lot. In comparison to other high-performing areas, right, whether you look at um, athletics or prof or, or sports or uh, even uh, more in the in the space of, of, of art. The high performers are much more used to actually manage their inner self and trained to do so. When you grow up in the business world, we know it's getting more and more attention, right, lately. Mm -hmm. I, I think also because the, the speed of change is so incredible that you almost have to get much better at managing your awareness. Otherwise, you just miss uh, a lot of signals around you uh, and in you. Um, but the business world has been deprived of uh, training in personal mastery. If you compare it to other high-performing sectors, if you like. Miguel, do you think that's because, like, do you think traditionally leadership was much more top-down and, and people were able to get into positions of power and hold authority without necessarily having to be graceful in terms of how they operate it? Like, do you think that the business context is changing in terms of leadership and what's expected of leaders and, and possibly looking at, you know, concepts like shared leadership and, and having that kind of ability to, to delegate versus a kind of command style of of, of leading, do you think that's changed over time and, 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 and pushed um, the agenda forward in terms of you know, leaders starting to look at their behavior and how they operate? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think um, one is the business world has become more and more complex. So the all-knowing CEO uh, is, is 
is not around anymore, right? It's very hard uh, to know all the answers that the all powerful executive is, is, uh, there was a little bit something of the, of the nineties, uh, that's definitely gone, right? So there's much more, uh, awareness about the need for teamwork. There's a much bigger emphasis on, on innovation and, uh, people are much more aware that, um, we're running into a decade that has so many unknowns. Um, that it's good to not only live with answers, but also live with questions as a leader. Jackie, you talk about emotional adaptability. What is that? It builds a bit on what uh, Michiel just uh, pictured, uh, that you have to be, you know, as leaders in this new environment or the fast-changing environment and the complex world, you need you don't know all the answers which leads to this, um, it can lead to feeling uncomfortable because uh, it, it basically means you're not always in control. And as human beings, we like to be in control. That's the, them feel comfortable. And, um, and the adaptability has everything to do with um, becoming comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing everything and, and all emotions that come with that. And yet keep an open mind uh, and a learning mind and a, and a way of moving forward so that you can basically adapt and, uh, and change whilst under pressure. And we explain that um, in the book as well, where we uh, basically set the, the, the whole book is set up around a very simple framework where we talk about um, the situation of, of today in the business world or also in in. in in general, um, leaders and people find themselves more often in high stakes and familiar situations. Um, and in those situations, it's hard to do that because emotions get in the way because we like to, um, feel comfortable and that, and that, and we, we talk about that as there is a paradox basically, because in those situations, the best thing to do is to keep an open mind and to, uh, stay flexible. And so that is uh, the flexibility has everything to do with not getting hooked or not getting stuck because of negative emotions and discomfort, but staying open and being able to continue to move forward even when it's tough. Mm. Jackie, how did you know you you talked about you know your interest in this work being you know stemming from your own challenges with anxiety? You know how has emotional kind of inflexibility played out in your life, in your career, in a negative sense? Oh, it, it ended well because the lemons that I threw, that I got, uh, I turned into uh, lemonade. But when it, uh, it started to become negative was when I started, I had moments where I actually very much felt like um, that I needed to have the perfect answer to everything all the time. And uh, I mean, and that that's to to me, you know, holding back information or being uh, afraid to say that I don't know everything, or to ask for help. And that is not very smart because then you can't learn and you can't collaborate and can't move forward. So that got me stuck. It's an interesting one. I mean, Michelle, maybe you can, you know, talk about some of these reflections here that we're having. Particularly, you know, in the world of high performance in business, I think that we're, when we can have fast answers and answers always available, 
we we're looked at is we're smart and capable and you know we're you know you develop that trusted advisor status and i think it's a very difficult place to be in you know particularly when you're at the board room and you know you may not know something and to have that ability to or that vulnerability to say you don't know and to be open that's challenging so i think this is where deliberate calm comes in right our ability to kind of hold space for our fears and i suppose our internal reactions in the face of what's coming up and respond effectively is is that is that the kind of no, i think i, I think uh, partly so right so i i think there is definitely in 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 the practice of deliberate calm you will expand your capacity to hold to hold uh, discomfort without without reacting right without trying to push it away with quick fixes um the other thing that it allows you to do and i think that's that's one that we uh, run into a lot a lot of the people that are in executive teams and a lot of companies that are successful they have found their formula or they have found a way of doing business and they have kind of like gotten into the grain of that um and we're now very often seeing clients that are trying to apply that success formula to a situation that's different from the past. And, and I think what Deliberate Calm invites you to do is to actually ask yourself, is the challenge that we're facing now fit to our past success formula? Or do we need to open up and innovate? Do we need to open up and change and, and, and look at things differently? Yeah, and and that's where the the reactive patterns and where, where companies and executives and people they sometimes miss the future because they try to repeat all all success models uh, all the time. Is this you know this de- deliberate calm? I would imagine works much better and much more effectively when the whole team is on the journey, right? Like like you know where you are creating a space where. It's kind of becomes part of the culture and thread of the company, I would imagine. Like, do you guys find, you know, and Jack and maybe I'll point this question to you, that executives can implement this in isolation or is it generally more effective if it becomes part of the DNA of, you know, the leadership team or the team or the company? It's a great, great question, RJ. And I love that question because... Um, in, in the book, we also spend time on on uh, describing deliberate comfort teams, um, but I think there is uh, there's two sides of uh, the same very valuable coin here. Um, the reason why I did my work uh, on authentic confidence and uh, and and deliberate calm builds on on a lot of that is that I wanted to learn personally, and also I wanted to help people personally to become effective, irrespective of what environment they find them in. And um, not denying that context is extremely important as well. There is a lot that you can do to empower yourself. And and our research shows that, and my research also has shown that. I've published on that. However, that said, I think if you can combine both sides, so you bring the culture and the team environment and the organizational environment together with the individual capacity to practice and to to also uh, need a deliberate comp, that potentially leads to a winner. 
because, uh, you know, it feeds off of each other. That's exactly the orchestra that you want to create. And we see a lot of evidence and reasons to believe that this is true. Also in uh, research that I've done with the McKinsey Health Institute, um, uh, of which I'm part, to employee burnout and well-being, where we very clearly saw that um, there are a lot of people in distress around the globe. Uh, The numbers are quite high. But we also see what drives that is uh, toxic behavior and uh, cultures that are not uh, supportive. Uh, and so if you could create a culture of inclusion and psychological safety, which automatically relates to the liberate con, then, uh, then that would lead to well-being, better performance. Uh, and if you add then the individual skills, I mean, uh, that is still something that... Uh, that I would personally want to do further research too, but it's absolutely something I strongly believe in and all the points of evidence and uh, all the evidence that I've seen point in the direction of exactly that. So um, yes, as an individual, you can benefit a lot from this work, but of course um, it's also important to bring that to the teams. That's that's the work that that also uh, we do um, because this work brings also a way of talking about these topics, a way of language, common language, into the boardroom or in the team room or or wherever in the organization, which yeah. helps to uh, to actually practice it um, in day to day life. So so maybe to make this practical, RG, what we do a lot with teams that we we always introduce this concept of learning versus protection. When you are in action. You're typically not aware that you're in protection, by the way, but that you are actually contracted and you are you are defending your your own opinion, uh, your old habits. Uh, you, you're basically unconsciously unwilling to change. And when you're in learning, you're more open. Uh, you're willing to shift your mind. You're willing to learn. You're willing to grow. You're willing to listen, etc. But we introduce those two states, and we explain to people you can never be 100 in in learning. Because whatever you come into an uncertain environment, we actually wired to get into a state of protection. Now, what great teams do, and that we help that we we help them uh, train that in themselves, is that when they learn to recognize the moments when they are when they tend to go into protection, which are the moments uh, where it actually really matters. Because the more important the topic and the higher the uncertainty, the more we are wired to get into protection. So they learn to recognize those moments. And they learn ways to support each other to move to learning, to actually relax the body, relax the mind, relax the atmosphere, and then go back to the to the difficult topic. Yeah, very powerful. I take Jackie's point on board. I think you know we all have to be the change we want to see, and as an individual, we have to have the courage to be authentic, to be vulnerable, and by kind of modeling the right behaviors, hopefully we set the pace for others. I think also to Jackie's point, you know, psychological safety does make that environment much easier to kind of implement things like vulnerability, like openness, to have a learning mindset. So I think that as an individual, I have to, or I should want to have the courage to to, you know, be vulnerable, to be open, um, and hopefully that will inspire others around me to do so. So I want to talk about the Deliberate Calm Leadership Program 
So let's say someone has engaged you guys to introduce the program into in an organization. Like, where do you start? Like, how do you start to even understand the context of the organization? You know, how healthy they are from a cultural perspective, how open they are, how closed they are. Jackie, maybe I'll hand this to you to kind of talk about what do you what do you do to really assess where you're at? Um, so that is a dynamic process. Um, we have so we have different ways of uh, doing this work with uh, with organizations, and one can be highly tailored and really uh, integrated within a transformation change process. But we also have a quite standard set of skills where actually the change is driven from a number of modules that we take the participants through, and then it comes alive through that process. Um, and we've done that very successfully both in, in a digital format. I mean, uh, we have a case study that we also researched in a randomized, uh, in a control trial, basically, where we had a couple of thousand people doing this program, and uh, and we used multi-rater feedback before and after, um, which means that we asked a couple of questions uh, from the participants, but also from people that they work with. And so they, I went through the program, 30 minutes a week, virtual program, a couple of, three months, well, and it was actually very interesting to see that people who were highly engaged with the program, so really willing to do the work, and they show three and a half times better leadership behaviors as an outcome than the peers who didn't engage that much. But on top of that, RJ, which was a huge benefit, they showed seven and a half times better well-being behaviors and experience. And so it's really uh, a double win-win basically. But, but in order to integrate it, uh, yeah, it depends on the ask that we have. Sometimes organizations are open to it. We we think it's most successful if you really bring it at the heart of the organization and the transformation that you want to achieve because eventually you want this to be very sustainable um, also for the journey that the organization is going uh, into. But there is also a version uh, where it's not organization-wide, but you just have um, individuals joining a program. And then the, the, the modules are quite standard, but the change happens then by the way we actually teach and take them through the program. Mahil, what's the connection or relevance, if any, between meditation and mindfulness and deliberate economy? Uh, well, I mean, in the end... Mindfulness is a lot about awareness in uh, in motion, I would say, right? If, if I make a distinction between meditation and mindfulness, I would say mindfulness is more awareness in action, whereas uh, meditation, even though you have very dynamic forms of it, but let's just stick with the, the traditional way of meditating, you do it in a, in, a, in a stable, quiet environment where you're not that much distracted, right? So in a way, uh, meditation allows you to actually practice the awareness muscle. And, um, so I think the one goes really well with the other. If you meditate well, you practice the awareness muscle in observing your emotions, observing your thoughts in the quiet uh, of a room or on your, on your, on your cushion. Uh, and then in mindfulness, it's actually meditation in motion, I would say. That's the way I, I, I frame it. Um, and And... The two go together. Yeah. Because I would imagine that to kind of implement deliberate poem, I would start to 
need to get a grasp on my processes and my internal reactions real time, right? And if I never was practicing that, to be able to go from kind of nothing to then becoming aware or gaining this level of insight would be quite difficult. So that really helps, I think, guide the conversation into the, the next phase is to how do we start to develop skills to implement deliberate calm. So, Jackie, maybe I'll point to you this concept of learning agility. What is this? So the concept of learning agility is really um, not only the UWE. It, it brings together uh, a lot of the things that we just spoke about. It's about um, the awareness of um, what is needed also in the moment, of course, um, but then keeping an open mind where if it's needed to change your behavior and uh, the way of uh, looking at the problem, that you are willing and, and able to do that. And agility has to do with uh, a change of mindset, the pivoting of the mindset in the moment, but also the change of behavior in the moment. And, uh, and through that, uh, learning new ways of working, learning new ways of doing things and adding behaviors to your repertoire that help you in the next time you come in a, in a, in a similar situation. So it, it really brings everything together uh, in, in the moment. It, it is actually um, is a number one driver of major success, which, is, uh, which we found as well. But it is an open mind or a broad mindset is just a one. We talk about different mindsets that you can use in the moment and looking at the situation in a different way. It is all about instead of doing what you usually do in similar situations, if something else is required, you need to learn something new, then you need to adjust. And so uh, instead of going left where you always go left, maybe it's now required to go right. And in order to go right, you need to do things differently or you need to look at things differently, uh, which requires this agility of the, of the mind and also the behavior. And you cannot do that without uh, being aware that you usually go left and, and what you usually do. So, um, and learn, in order to learn, you also need to set yourself up for success, um, requiring efforts and, and also requires you um, most of the time to stay calm. Because if you don't stay calm, you, you spend a lot of energy on managing the emotions and the stress in the moment. And so that, that it's basically at the heart of this, this whole concept of adaptability. Uh, and handling um, the situations uh, that you may encounter that require a different approach. In your opinion, can someone have a growth mindset and still be a perfectionist? You don't think perfectionism is a fixed mindset? Can be. That's an interesting question, and I'm reflecting on it whilst we speak, uh, RJ, because it. I'm ass- I'm assuming when you ask the question that there is a value statement behind it, but the perfectionist with that, I I think. Uh, it's basically having a high bar and wanting to things to do to to do the things right and do them well. But I think you can have two types of perfectionists. Maybe the perfectionist that doesn't accept failure or making mistakes—that's more the fixed mindset. Versus wanting to do the right things and doing them well, we'll also have a compassion for when you make a failure. That can still be that you strive for perfection, but you are okay if it's not achieved. So it's a bit philosophical, but. You made me think there, so thank you. I think you gave a really good answer. I mean, I think that I performers hold perfectionism and a growth mindset skillfully. 
right? They use failure or, you know, they use regret as a tool, right? They don't get hung up on it, though. Like, I think, like, they use it as an enabler to, to ensure that they're pushing the bar and they're maintaining the bar. However, they don't get bogged down in it and, and cemented in it. And I think it's it's tricky. In, in acceptance and commitment therapy, we call it the getting fused with the identity or with this thing mm-hmm. where if you can hold it lightly uh, and with a lot of self-compassion, you can also go beyond it. And they can be a powerful duo, but you always have to be honest to yourself when you cross the line. I'm certainly one that often goes in the danger zone. <laughs> Myself. Me too. I think I think there's always... I mean, this taps into the, the concept of identity, right? Like some say, you know, don't you know, to kind of hold your identity light and loose. But I've also found identification and completely aligning with a sense of an identity is a very powerful enabler driver. And so, like, when do you, you know, when do you hold it light and when do you be utterly consumed with a sense of identity to the extent that it pushes you beyond what you thought was capable? I mean... These are tricky things to contemplate and to answer, but I suppose everyone has to do that for themselves and and really be aware when they're moving into the danger zone. But I think I think uh, knowing and being aware of what your identity is is already very powerful, right? Because when you're totally consumed by your identity, you're not aware that you're being consumed. You are you you are your identity instead of you're having an identity. And I think the part of the practice of this of this work is that you become more aware that you have an identity, but you are not your identity, um, and you can actually let go of it when it's needed, uh, when something new is required. Because whether it's an identity or an opinion that's part of your identity or a conviction that's part of uh, your past, it's all the same thing, right? It, they, they all create blind spots if you don't realize that they're part of something that you attach value to. Yeah. Mihil, what's emotional self-regulation? How would you describe that? Because you guys have written that this is also another habit in in terms of how we can build deliberate calm. Yeah, I think emotional awareness and self-regulation, they they go hand in hand, right? So the, the awareness is that you actually observe the emotions when they arise in you. And then the regulation is the skill that you don't get swept away by it, right? So many high performers welcome anxiety before they go into a big uh, performance uh, arena, right? Whether it's a stage or a big speech or an important meeting, they kind of welcome the anxiety and they use it to their advantage. That's so they regulate their emotions to, towards a positive outcome. Um, when you feel anger uh, because something is someone is 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 um, doing something that you really not agree with, um, you can give into that and get into a huge fight, or you can actually use it to your advantage and connect with it without reacting, but choosing your response. So that's really it. It's the ability to choose your response because you are in touch with your emotion. If self-mastery needs to more and more awareness, I think it's very important because if we don't do this as humanity, 
if we don't increase our level of awareness to uh, to the increased level of change around us, uh, we put ourselves in deeper and deeper trouble. So we need leaders that pursue self self mastery. We need leaders that increase their awareness, so they can actually be much better connected and aware of the change that is required um, in the world and in themselves. Do you think, like, by implementing this stuff, we develop more ethical leaders? No, I don't. I, that's not what I'm implying. I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I don't think that unawareness is unethical. I just think that unawareness leads to old answers to new problems or simple answers to complex issues. So it's it's in the end. Um, I do think you get to better outcomes for uh, for yourself and others if you uh, act from a larger uh, consciousness, a higher consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting, Jackie. What what's dual awareness? Uh, dual awareness is basically um, the awareness of the situation that you're in. So um, being aware of what the situation calls for uh, in technical terms um, and bringing it together with your internal awareness. So we, we have also, we use two uh, terms that come close to this from uh, neuroscience, interoception and extraception. Um, and often, you know, we 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 are not aware that we are responding, uh, you know, in a, in a way we are led by emotions or we swept away by whatever we feel in situations that require something else and that require us to pause. And in and of itself, asking yourself the question when you feel stressed and tense, what is actually asked from me right now in this situation is already an emotion, emotion regulation technique because it puts the spotlight on the situation rather than the spotlight on yourself. I think bring them together and it's always interactive, right? In the moment there's new information coming in that impacts dynamic, basically. It impacts how you feel and how you respond and then that all goes on and on. But it, it asks you, it requires from you to check in with yourself and to continuously check in with the situation and integrating that information because that helps you then to respond in the right way. And it sounds very technical. It sounds very like, wow, there's a whole, a whole protocol, you know, just to do that. But that can happen in split seconds if you learn that. A friend of mine tells me to kind of do the needful thing, right? Like, you know, what's in front of me? And I think, uh, yeah, I think it's important. And I think kind of bringing the right attitude and, uh, and, uh, and response to a situation it's, it's not always easy though is it when we're when we're activated and when we're in kind of this fight or flight mode particularly in a boardroom where we may feel threatened you know you've got prestige power money influence at stake and uh it's not always easy i suppose for for individuals for for all of us to be graceful under fire and, that's part of the reason why I wanted to get uh, both of you on the show because I think it's really important to be talking about this. And I think that, and I know that particularly uh, the viewers and listeners at Ultra Habits are going to get a lot out of this conversation. I am going to start to land the plane now, Jackie Mihill. But before we go, I kind of always ask 
my guests about habits and things they do that are personal to them. So maybe Jackie, I'll ask you, what are a habit or two or, you know, a couple things that you do that help you kind of weather the storm, that help you manage your anxiety or just ultimately help you have a better life? Well, I have quite a few, RJ, but I, um, for SOS moments, if I'm doing strumming, strumming beneath and breath work, mm. so I know how to breathe and I have different techniques. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot more that you can do physically also to, so, so what is important uh, to exercise, this is not a brain only thing, of course, the brain is steering the whole body, but it's important to become aware of that. And for me, it's breath work and movement. Um, and as I told you before we started, I'm a bit jet lagged today, so that impacts also and the sharpness of our response. But it feeds into another habit. I try to sleep well. Yeah, it's a foundation to 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 everything actually that follows. Yeah, we we actually had a uh, a startup. There were a couple of the founders of the startup uh, called Onda here in Australia last week and the girl that founded the company she's Icelandic and it means breathe and it's a product that monitors your breath breath, and it'll tell you during the day if you're not breathing properly and it's aimed to work forwards I think it's a pretty good product you know because they take a lot of us in high tension high impact situations we just stop breathing we just don't breathe we don't breathe properly Mihil how about you yeah, for me, I mean, I think a couple of things. So what, what, what I'm doing, and it, it changes a bit over time, right? It's not always the same, but what I'm doing in the past period is uh, every morning when I wake up, I, I indeed do breath work, the specific breath work, and then I do, I get into the cold water. Uh, so I do the ice water. I have a I have an ice cold pool outside, and I go in, and what I practice there is actually emotional self-regulation because everything in my mind screams get out of the cold water uh, but when i relax my body into it at will yeah. um all good it used to start to flow and i'm and yeah. smile on my face for the rest of the day yeah. so i think there's there's that part and then the other thing what i find important is um to mix your uh commitments you know, when you have a very intense role it's good to have something else besides it. So you're not too mono-focused and give your life to one thing only. So there yeah. could be friendships, it could be sports, it could be something that is important to you in addition to the, the sometimes consuming work life. Yeah. Well, that's a very good answer. We, Mihail, have in the, not too far from me, a guy named Mark Pluer, who is Australia's answer to Wim Hof. In fact, they're going to listen. Yeah, uh, we go to his farm and we get into the cold. I I do the ice plunge most mornings here. Uh, We have a workout. Uh, My friend has a gym up the road and I live on a mountain and there's about six or seven of us and we work out and then we we go into the sauna and then we jump into the cold and go into the sauna. And uh, I do too. I find the cold. There's nothing like it to kind of re-energize and rejuvenate. I've got little kids and I'm exhausted by two o'clock. I'll take a cold shower in the afternoon and I find just instantly I'm awake, you know, but uh, excellent, excellent advice, guys. So where can 
our audience learn more about the book and your work, Jackie, maybe I'll ask you, hand it over to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, they can connect with me or LinkedIn. Uh, I'll post a lot of things and all the other publications that uh, we have are on there. And they can find Deliberate Common any bookstore, Amazon, um, but also um, if they pull well McKinsey, Deliberate Common, they'll find more information. There's a lot to be found everywhere. Me- Mihal, you're on. Are you on social media? Are you on Instagram or TikTok? Same thing. I only LinkedIn. <laughs> I only do LinkedIn. I try to keep my sanity. Um, and then, uh, of course, the book is available everywhere, and uh, people can can contact me through LinkedIn. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, folks. Thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation, and if you have. I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you, we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam, and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.